Welcome to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast, episode 38. Today is the main guide traditional canoeing episode. Welcome to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Jack Mountain Bushcraft School founder and master main guide, Tim Smith. I'm your host, Tim Smith. I'm a registered master main guide and in 1999, I founded the Jack Mountain Bushcraft School. We help people become more skilled, more knowledgeable, more experienced, and more confident outdoors by using traditional skills, a few simple tools, and field-based experience. Whether you're looking to go from city slicker to competent outdoor professional, want to experience a remote expedition, or just want to learn a few new outdoor skills, we've got you covered. You can check out the show notes to this and all of our podcasts, at blog.jackmtn.com. When you're there, click on the podcast button. And if you enjoy the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Lastly, the best way to keep up with our programs and trips is to join our email newsletter. And you can do that at jmbnews.com. Welcome back to another episode of the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast. Today, we are going to talk about canoes canoeing, canoe gear, and the traditional skills employed by Maine guides for for generations and hundreds of years. Uh, this morning it's Christopher and I sitting in the guide shack. It's a beautiful blustery Saturday morning. Um, how are we doing today? Can't complain, still recovering from uh, Grammys last night. <laughs> we had a trip last night. Uh, we had to go down. There's a really cool Amish hardware store down uh, about an hour away in Smyrna and when we're down there we go to Grammy's Country Inn a restaurant with enormous portions all the portions yeah it's it's pretty ridiculous <laughs> uh so yeah fighting a food hangover i'm yeah. losing so but we've got lots of strong coffee and that'll <laughs> hopefully get us through anything <laughs> so um want to talk today about Canoeing, canoes, traditional main guide canoeing skills. So in this part of the world, we have different traditions than in a lot of other places. And um, as the canoe has sort of fallen out of favor for kayaks uh, in most parts of the world, it's still a big part of life here. And that mostly evolved out of practicality. Mm. The early settlers learned from the natives that it's hard going walking through the forests here. Um, so the, the rivers and lakes were the highways. So I'm a real big fan of researching old canoe routes and seeing how, you know, people would get from one place to another by boat. And then in the winter season, you use the same routes, but you travel on snowshoes and haul gear on toboggans and sleds. Mm -hmm. So it's the same, the same highways and, and the same routes, the same highways obviously exist now as did a thousand years ago. And it's just a question of, of learning them and knowing where to go. And maybe the easiest route between two drainages, um, you know, or something like that. Uh, and again, I've got, I've got books uh, in the library here. And uh, two that come to mind. One is called From New York to Nome. And during the height of the Great Depression, these two guys who worked in Manhattan in New York City hatched a plan. Got an old canoe paddle up the Hudson River through uh, Lake Champlain up to the St. Lawrence 
through the Great Lakes across the Grand Portage and eventually ended up going the whole way down the Yukon River to Nome, Alaska. So covering the entire continent uh, by water. Um, I think it was Carl Shepardson and wrote one called The Family Canoe Trip where they started in southwestern New Hampshire and basically covered the same route. Uh, I think it was in the 1980s, but that's a, always an interesting one. And there's a great book also by a guy named William Least Heat Moon, who you may know from a book called Blue Highways. And this one was called River Horse, Crossing America by Water. And he started in Newark Harbor, went up the, up the Hudson River, across the Erie Canal, um, got into Lake Chautauqua, the headwaters of the Ohio, came down the, the Ohio River drainage, to the Mississippi, and then up the entire Missouri, uh, then a little overland there into the headwaters of the Snake, down the Snake, into the Columbia, and out into the Pacific Ocean that way at the mouth of the Columbia River. So there's, you know, a long history of people traversing long distances mm -hmm. by canoe. And oh, the last one was, I think, 10,000 miles with a canoe, where this family of a dad and two boys mm -hmm. traveled from Canada to down the whole Mississippi, around the around the Gulf of Mexico, and up the Amazon. So yeah, you know, so there's lots of neat. Yeah, Voyageur, the book where he, um, I think he's a journalist, but he recreated uh, a path through the Smokies. I think Canadian I think? Rockies. Canadian Rockies. Right? I can't remember. Is but, the book in the library? Yeah, I just yeah. haven't read it in a year and a half. But <clears throat> but yeah, there's all sorts of stuff talking about you know the kind of. I don't want to call them adventures, but the ease of transportation that comes with a canoe. And I'm a big fan of uh, talking about how, you know, the canoe, the most graceful craft ever created. Um, no moving parts, but yeah, it can transport you, your family, and all your stuff across this continent. And You're talking about the minivan? <laughs> the van again? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so during courses here, I always like I have a I have a big four wheel drive truck, and I always like to tell those folks on courses that when they market these trucks, they always say this thing is equated with freedom. They always say you know four wheel drive equals freedom, but you know eight thousand parts, nine uh, seven thousand of which are moving parts that consistently break. You got to put oil in it. You got to put gas in it. You got to maintain it. You got to do this. You got to buy tires. You got to all these things and. And, and it's really, really expensive. You know, with a canoe, once you have it, there's no more moving parts. Sure, it might take a little bit of upkeep now and then. But I couldn't go, you know, what's my range on my truck is maybe 300 miles. But again, we just listed several trips of five, th five plus thousand miles that people did with a canoe. No moving parts. So while they want to sell you the four-wheel drive and equate that with freedom, you know, the canoe... Uh, and to, you know, in a northern extent, maybe the snowshoe and the toboggan. That represents true freedom. My uh, my grandparents had a thing hanging in their <clears> house <throat> from as early as I can remember. And it said, um, bound is the boatless man. And I don't really know where that quote came from. But, yeah, same idea that, you know, that the the boat is freedom. The, the ability to travel on water, that's, that's where you're unfettered, I would say, as opposed to trying to tramp through anything. Well, I, I would say, you know, going somewhere of your own power, your yeah, own two legs, exactly. that's freedom. But yeah. just a big, horrible, gas-guzzling four-wheel drive. Mm -hmm. I have a love-hate relationship with automobiles. I appreciate what they do for me, but I'm fully uh, cognizant of the cost <laughs> involved. Yeah. 
and uh, and get annoyed by them when they break. So that's why I love stuff like snowshoes, canoes, because they always work. And if they don't, you can fix them pretty easily. Yeah, on your own. So history of the canoe in this part of the world in Maine. Um, you know, they say some of the greatest uh, birch canoe builders ever were in this region because there's a lot of birch and there were a lot of people, and a canoe was really important in that culture. But different cultures had different boat designs. Um, and if you're curious about that, pick up a copy of Edward Tappan Abbey, Tappan Adney's uh, Bark and Skin Boats of North America, where he has schematic drawings of all the different types of boats made by the different cultures. But um, it's pretty well documented. Lots of birch bark canoes here. In fact, they were building so many in the early 1800s that uh, they started to run out of good birch because they were just harvesting it a lot faster than it could grow back. So an enterprising guy, I can't remember who it was, determined that um, sheathing a cedar boat uh, with bark, you could also sheath it with canvas and paint the canvas and that would act similarly to the bark. So that was a great step forward. Another step forward was if you were to become a bark, uh, birch bark boat builder back in the day, you would have to apprentice under somebody for a long time because it was really the eye of the builder that uh, resulted in the shape of the hull. And when you're doing a lot of canoeing, variations in hull shape have huge repercussions with regards to how a boat will handle. Mm. So, you know, you would apprentice under under an old guy who had been doing it forever and kind of learn how to see how to form the boat. Um, and then some enterprising guy decided that they could build a form that they would bend the ribs over and, uh, you know, attach the planks on, which would reproduce an exact shape time after time after time. So essentially they became able to mass produce boats of super high quality. And that's when the wood canvas boat building traditions really took off and companies like Chestnut and Old Town, um, you know, and there's a really neat, rich history there and it's pretty well documented. Uh, but anyway, so that, so they had those and then those wood canvas canoes were really popular up until, uh, I think it was World War II. <clears throat> and then the Grumman Company started making them out of aluminum. And they, these things were, you know, pretty indestructible. Um, you, you know, the wood canvas canoe takes a significant amount of upkeep. They're a lot tougher than people think. I've got a couple and I've paddled them hard for 20 years. Uh, you know, I've re-canvassed them a few times, replace a rib here or there. The aluminum uh, just changed the game because, number one, it wouldn't rot. If you left a wood canvas canoe sitting on the ground in a wet spot, that wood's going to rot after a couple of years. So the aluminum just wouldn't rot. Uh, and, you know, if you banged a dent in it, you could hammer it out with a hammer. doesn't sound that uh, uh, glamorous. but uh. And then after, after the aluminum came, the fiberglass revolution, and that changed things. And then the plastics that they came up with, um, probably the most famous of which was the, uh, the Royal X, which was a brand name made by the Uniroyal Tire Company. Um, but we have a bunch of Royal X boats here still. They quit making it a few years ago, and now the different canoe companies are coming up with their own sort of proprietary plastic. And it's not just a plastic. It's usually several layers of plastic with like a foam core sandwiched in the middle, but these things are tough. They used to, and I think still do, advertise them by videotaping, throwing the boat off the roof of the factory, and you know, and it doesn't really hurt the boat. So they're they're pretty tough. They're pretty rugged and good to go. Um, so you know, the history of the manufacturer is is long and and interesting. And if you love paddling canoes, it's a great uh, 
a great few chapters in a book for a snowy winter day where there's no open water to be seen. Hmm. <clears throat> so, you know, why we canoe here is, is canoeing is a huge part of what we do here at the Jack Mountain Bushcraft School. Um, in addition to carrying on the traditions of the past, uh, it's just a really effective and efficient way to move through the northern forest. And it really gives us a platform that we can live out of uh, remotely on the trail, um, you know, in remote locations. And we do it each year. We have a four-week canoe expedition. So we spend a month, you know, living out of canoes uh, at one, you know, for, for a straight month. And then, you know, we spend a lot of time during the nine-week semester in canoes as well, where we do a couple of weeks of travel. Uh, so, you know, a couple of big reasons why we canoe, uh, you know, these days, everybody wants to kayak. Uh, I'm a registered Maine sea kayak, uh, sea kayak guide, and I really like kayaking. But I think each um, location has a craft that's really good for that location. So it's sure, you know, it's real easy to jump in a little kayak if you're on a lake or a pond and get out and, and drop a line in the water. Uh, I will say that basic kayaking is much lower skilled than basic canoeing. And the reason is with a canoe, the goal is to learn to paddle only on one side of the boat. And so for each paddle stroke you take, that boat wants to yaw away from the side you're paddling on. So you have to build in corrections as part of your canoe stroke. Mm -hmm. Whereas with a kayak, you paddle on one side, you paddle on the other. And most people can jump in a kayak and keep it going pretty straight within about three or four minutes. Whereas to learn how to paddle a canoe very well takes, you know, I'm of the belief and I'll say in all of our courses, it takes 100 miles of focused practice to learn how to paddle a canoe well. I would also say that there's something to be said for looking at the history of um, what each individual, uh, you know, watercraft was used for. I think I think it was Ben that was talking about it the other day. But the the kayak originally was it was a hunting vessel, right? It wasn't made for long sustained trips where you were taking, you know, your entire life with you. Whereas a canoe was for people moving from you know, maybe their summer hunting grounds to where they st spent the winter. So or, you know. or hunting geese, hunting moose. Yeah. But the, yeah, the, the, the bigger craft in the far sure. north where they were using kayaks was called the Umiak. Mm. And that was like a big open boat. Yeah. But yeah, the kayak was something they would hunt seals and whales with. Sure. Harpoons. Yeah. You know, Hand-thrown harpoons. Exactly. But there were, obviously, you know, there are variations. Yeah. There were bigger kayaks and, you know, people would travel farther. And, sure. Uh, but yeah, so... And one other thing, um, you know, if you're in a kayak, especially if you're in, say, a big sea kayak with a spray skirt and stuff, it's not as easy to get out of. So, say, if you're in a rapid, you know, it's a lot easier to get pinned. You're lower to the water. Mm -hmm. You don't have as good a vision. You can't see things like horizon lines, obstructions, strainers, sometimes until you're right on top of them. And in, if it's a little kayak that's maneuverable, uh, great. Yep. Uh, but you can't hold any, any stuff in it. And if it's a big long kayak that'll hold lots of stuff, they are not super maneuverable, right? right? It is not a it's not a whitewater boat. Like my big uh, seventeen foot sea kayak, man, it it it's got a big turning radius. It's like you're in a it's like you're in a semi truck, yeah, right? I think you're you're hitting on something really interesting, which is the versatility of the canoe, um, not just for like the different kinds of water it can run, but the versatility that it allows um, for the person manning that craft. You know, we kind of talked about it the other day with the students, but if you're paddling and you start to get sore, so your legs start to get sore because you've been sitting for four hours, you can stand up and paddle that way or start pulling or it just allows for a lot of 
it allows you to go for a long time because you can change um, the method with what you're you're powering the canoe. And I think that that's something to take into account if you're you're living out of it for a week and hauling around, you know, 200 pounds of gear with you. That's yeah. That's or if important. you if you uh, do a remote hunt and you shoot a moose. You know, I can take the center thwart out of my 20-foot mm-hmm. canoe, throw the moose in, and get it back to town. Whereas, you know, if you don't have that, it's going to yeah. be four-wheelers and winches. And, you know, mm-hmm. if you're lucky, maybe a helicopter. You know, Blend. people don't, around here in northern Maine, people don't shoot a moose more than a couple of hundred feet from a road. Because how are you going to get that yeah. thing out? They're massively large That's animals. Uh, anyway, so, yeah, so canoe versus kayak. One of the other things we get a lot, and a lot of outdoor programs do a lot of hiking, um, and we like to travel on foot. We think it's enjoyable, mm-hmm. uh, but the the downside from an educational perspective is most people show up here knowing how to walk. Uh, most. So, so there's not a ton of stuff. You know, hiking, long-distance hiking is very gear-centered, and it's really just about going out. There's not a lot of skill involved. I mean, there are some skills and you know, if that's your thing, I'm not trying to put it down by any means, but yeah. we can definitely, whereas canoeing is very high skill um, and very low tech. So people come here, they want to learn to be guides. We can teach them, uh, you know, if someone's been canoeing for, for 10 years, there are still new things we can teach them, yeah. especially with the traditional skills that we incorporate into canoeing. And I would say just <clears> from an educational standpoint, um, you know, if we're trying to pack as much learning as we can into nine weeks, um, that just makes canoeing make even more sense because, like you said, everybody shows up knowing how to hike. So it would be um, if we went on tra- out on trail hiking, the teaching would only happen when we arrived at wherever the campsite was and set up. But with the canoes, while we're out on trail, people are learning every second that we're out there um, just just because of the mode of transportation that we're using. So I want to talk a little bit about the skills that we use in order to canoe well um you know most people think of canoeing they think of uh, hopping in on a pond and and paddling around the pond uh which is significantly different than expedition paddling or at least the style that <clears throat> that we practice here so there's three major skills with canoeing and i think in order to run you know a remote whitewater trip where there's significant danger and not an easy way to evacuate out in case of an accident you should be proficient at all three and those are paddling pulling and lining so paddling i think we all know at least what a canoe paddle is it's a fancy looking stick that's skinny on one end fat on the other that we push water around with we'd like to have the people here uh make their own paddle on the semester course and and people are actually just finishing them up uh, this weekend, and we'll be out mm-hmm. on the water using those paddles. So uh, the other, well, I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. The second piece is polling, and polling sort of reached its epicenter here in northern Maine, uh, eastern Quebec, New Brunswick, because our rivers get really shallow in the su- late summer and fall. Um, and traditionally, the native people would float down to the coast, spend the summers on the coast, and then pull back up to their hunting grounds in the winter. So it's a great way to travel upstream. It's a great way to travel in shallow water. It's a great way to travel downstream and have complete 100% control over your boat. And a pole is really just a stick that you push off on the bottom with. So whereas with a paddle, you're pushing water in a moving medium on a river. 
the pole. You can stop in the middle of a rapid. You can go back up the rapid. It's really just an amazing, amazing piece of kit, but has its own skill set that is not many people are familiar with. Yeah, it's not it's not super intuitive, but when you get it, the the amount like you kind of just said, the amount of control you can have while you're in the water is unprecedented so where i will say it's 100 miles to learn how to paddle a canoe i'll say it's 87.3 miles to become efficient at pulling a canoe the third thing is uh lining and that's where you tie ropes onto your boat and maybe you can drop them over a ledge or kind of stand on shore and walk it down through a series of really tricky rapids um, if you didn't want to unload and carry everything around. Mm. And that's a really good one. A couple of years ago, I was on the Bonaventure River on the Gaspé Peninsula in Quebec doing it solo. And, um, you know, whenever you're alone, you have to take better care and more precautions than if you're in a big group because there's no one there to save your butt if you get in trouble. So I lined, there's a canyon there called Kicking Horse Pass, and I ended up lining a bunch of the ledge drops there just because I was not familiar, super familiar with the river and uh, just wanted the air on the side of safety. So, so again, let me circle back. We have people carve their own paddle here because people who don't know any better will often treat their canoe paddle like a canoe pole and jam it on the bottom off of rocks and things. Um, so a really good way to have people not get into that habit is to force them to carve their own paddle that they're going to use <clears throat> with the idea that if they spend three days with hand tools working on this thing, they're going to be a lot less cavalier about jamming it into rocks and, you know, ending up breaking it. So, you know, that's kind of the part of the wisdom of our uh, having people carve their own. But it's also there's something really special about making your own paddle and then going and paddling 100 miles with it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just a different animal and you're not just a consumer who who drove down to the outfitter store and got a plastic T-handle <clears throat> paddle. You know, the experience that you have is significantly different when you're making your own gear. Um, you know, other pieces of gear that we make, we make our own ropes here. We make mm. our own... Um, poles. Yeah, we make our own poles and shoe our poles ourselves. Uh, we've built... I've built, uh, not by myself, but with another guy, one wood canvas boat. In the long run, I hope to get into that, but... It just never seems like there's enough months in the year to get all these projects in. Mm. Um, but yeah, making your own gear gives you a whole another appreciation for the for the uh, experience. Um, so yeah, there's our approach. Uh, trips that we like to go on here. Uh, you know, I've guided on all the major rivers in northern Maine. Nope, I take that back. I've never guided the Machias River down east, and I've never been on the Moose River near Jackman, but uh, East Branch, West Branch, and then Penobscot, Allagash, St. John, um, Aroostook Drainage, which is our home drainage, and that's where we spend most of our time, mm-hmm. uh, you know, lots of time in that. St. Croix down east is a great run. Um, the Saco in New Hampshire and Maine and the Androscoggin uh, are both great runs, um, but you know, we spend most of our time up here in the Aroostook drainage and you know i tend to love all the little out of the way places where where nobody else goes and there are a lot of them up here uh beyond the borders of maine every couple of years we do a florida everglades paddling trip and that's flat water but there are some significant navigation challenges um and it's just a really neat experience to go down there especially when it's like late march here and you don't know if it's going to be winter or spring 
when you wake up each day and it, it's schizophrenic one day it'll be you know the dead of winter and two degrees fahrenheit and the next day it's 60 degrees and raining and so it, you know that's sort of the hole up in the cabin and read books about stuff so a great time to head south and you know explore some other parts of the country um, but also St. Croix on the New, New Brunswick uh, main border. New Brunswick's a beautiful province. And then uh, in Quebec, you know, I've been canoeing up with the Cree in northern Quebec with my friends David and Anna Bosom. Uh, been over to La Verandrie Provincial Park and, and the, the beautiful rivers out on the Gaspé, the Bonaventure. Uh, we're headed up there again in in six weeks. We'll be on the Bonaventure Um and it'll be fun. We're going to end up going with a, a group of guys from Caramat. Yeah, uh, I'm excited about that. Uh, what, what do you? Is it just Caramat? It's not Caramat. Caramat, Caramat Wilderness Ways. Wilderness. I was going to say Caramat Survival School, but that's not right. So, no. super looking forward to sharing the river with those guys Absolutely. and introducing them to uh, to polling. Um, and and uh, <laughs> we have a really good time when we're together. So, <laughs> a lot of raucous bad humor and. We'll probably shoot some sanitized video that if we if we shoot if we uh, shot and showed the unsanitized versions. Tim, I don't know if there's enough get alcohol in the world to sanitize the humor <laughs> up here. Anyway, so there's lots of great trips. Um, when I lived in Alaska, I loved that Swan Lake canoe route down on the Kenai Peninsula. Did that a bunch of times. Uh, great story there. We. Uh, Three of us did it right this the right after we did that summer practicum in 1995. So three of us do the I don't know maybe it was 40 miles, but you start off carrying through a series of lakes and ponds, and then you end up in the Moose River and float down that. So we only brought like a little bag of rice with us, I think, and uh, you know planning on living off the land as we mm-hmm. went, and we just tried pretty hard and didn't have a lot of luck catching fish on that trip. But we came into one pond and there were a whole bunch of bulrushes, so we ate a ton of bulrushes the bases of them and uh so you'd pull them up and eat them and it was it was good so i think it was the last night we were there uh is it i think we were on swan lake um and one of the guys patrick who was there uh master of all the edible plants and mushrooms and could id them all so we're camped on this lake he finds this big thing of mushrooms and then these, I think it was a couple, like a man and a woman from Germany, I want to say, were also camped on the other side of the lake. We saw their campfire. And from Swan Lake to the Moose River, it was like a mile-long carry. So we had to uh, carry all our stuff. And they had all this food. like, But they were really interested in mushrooms. So... <laughs> So Patrick took him for a walk in the woods. You know, we're hungry. We hadn't eaten yeah. hardly anything in like four days at this point. So we take him for a walk in the woods and packed him shows in this big bat, this big, uh, big bunch of uh, Boletus edulis, an edible, beautiful mushroom that, that turned out to be their favorite mushroom. They harvested a whole bunch and they were so happy that they gave us like jars of peanut butter, jelly, fine cheeses, like cocktail sausages. So we sat there. Patrick's knowledge of edible wild mushrooms allowed us to gorge ourselves on uh, like, you know, all this, all this stuff. I'm going to be completely honest with you, Tim. I thought that story was end was going to end with, and only two of us came back like that. You ate the third guy with you. Uh, no, it was, it was, uh, I, it was tempting to do that. But, I'm sure uh... he started looking like a big Turkey leg with a paddle in his hand. Exactly. Um, <laughs> So, uh, just a couple other quick points. Um, you know, something canoeing is a great lifelong sport and with lifelong sports in order to keep it interesting, you sort of want to be 
continuously improving, mm. right? So there's, you know, a couple of ways, two different ways that we will continuously improve our skills in a sport. Number one is to study or learn from someone else. Uh, so in that respect, uh, Christopher and I here are both going to go take a uh, Swift Water Rescue yeah. class here in, a, in two weekends. Two yeah, so that'll be fun. You know, we've been on remote trips in the middle of nowhere and guys have gotten boats pinned and we pulled them off using Z-drags and flip-flop winches and other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it'll just be exciting to have some more. Yeah, uh, ongoing formal Add more to the repertoire. That. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, see what see how mm-hmm. somebody else solves those problems. Yeah. So, so yeah, doing a class like that from time to time. But I think the more important of the two is is uh, constantly improving while you're solo. So without a formal class environment, and you know, one of the things I tell all of our students is to treat your paddling stroke like a pathologist who would, you know, dissect something and try to find out what was wrong with it, what killed mm. it. So, you know, as your paddle is traveling through the water, watch how that paddle moves. Watch the little whirlpools that it generates, um, you know, and determine what part of the stroke are you putting muscular energy into that is not helping to move the boat in the desired direction. And then on subsequent strokes, eliminate that. Mm. So the goal in the long term is to only put muscular energy into what is driving the boat in its desired direction. So it, it sounds really simple now, but you know, people who lean way forward or lean way back or have their paddle entering the water at a steep angle, all those things are energy sucks mm-hmm. that really don't help you at all. So the goal in our guide training programs, if you're going to be guiding canoe trips, if you're working really hard to not to, to, and not being efficient, when you finally get to the campsite at the end of the day, your tank is probably going to be pretty empty. So if you're the guide, you need to be the person when you arrive at camp who has a lot left in the tank because then you got to build a cooking tripod. Mm-hmm. you got to get firewood. you got to cook dinner. you got to make sure everybody's sorted out. you got to take care of all the gear. So the, the way to do that is to learn how to paddle as efficiently as possible. Yeah, and I would say the other, the other aspect of that is just canoe a lot there's um we were kind of talking about it before we started recording but the uh the idea that every stretch of water no matter how many times you paddle it it's different every time there's so many variables going on whether that's the weather or the water level or the wind um and there's something to be learned from every every second you're on the water there's something you can be learning about the how the water works and how you work in it Every second, really? Yeah. I'd say maybe like blocks of five seconds, but every second. I guess I'm just going that extra 10%, Tim. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's an interesting thing that he's talking about. Uh, Most people have heard the term deja vu, which is like when you feel like you've been somewhere before. But I heard a guy once talk about vuja day, which is the opposite of it. And that's sort of like seeing the world... Seeing the same thing again over and over, but with new eyes. Mm-hmm. So kind of like the idea of being a tourist where everything looks new and exciting. Yeah. So if you, you know, imagine if I drive the same route on my commute to work every day, always looking for new things, always, you know, trying to see it in a new way. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what you're, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's what you're getting at with if you're paddling the yeah, same exactly. water. There's always more exactly. to see. Exactly. There's always more to see. There's always a different thing to be learned. And I think that, the other, you know, I've never, I've never been out canoeing and felt like I was working 
And I think that's an awesome, awesome segue into learning is that you're just having fun with it. And if you're trying to improve it, if you're trying to improve the way in which you have fun, that's a pretty easy way to get yourself to learn. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, along the same lines, there's value in traveling a river or going out on a lake with an old guy who's been down it or on it for years. Maybe, you know, somebody who's done 50, 100 Allagash trips. Absolutely. They know everything about all the campsites. They know where the good firewood Mm -hmm. is. They know where the good fishing holes are. They know where the good swimming holes are. They know the little bits of history around each bend in the river. So that, you know, there's always something new to learn and it's always fun to go with people who've, who've learned a lot over a lifetime. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I can't, I think that kind of wraps up what mm-hmm. we were, what we had mapped out to talk about this morning. So, yeah. Okay, so that'll wrap up, uh, episode 38. Again, if you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a review. Um, and if you have things that you would like for us to, uh, to talk about in future ep- uh, episodes, uh, you know, get in touch with us. It's pretty easy to do. Uh, I don't need to tell you how you can figure it out. <laughs> you know, go on our website and you'll find out how to get in touch. But or you're just a, so helpful, Tim. Or, I just can't get over or it. Or leave a comment or whatever. But uh, yeah, so if there's topics that you want to hear, let us know and we'll try to address them. But so lastly, I just encourage you to get out there, whether it's on yeah. the water, whether it's out for a hike. You know, the world's a beautiful place. And here in Aroostook County, spring is finally, finally getting here. And this morning was the first. Oh, I lied. I was going to say this morning was the first morning that I could look out and uh, not see snow, but I just I, I looked in a different direction and I still see snow. But it's <laughs> kill it, kill it. We can't talk anymore. Thanks. Thanks.